Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today I'm with Jeff Goins is the author of a book called Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. And I particularly love this book because he's talking about the fact that you don't have to be a starving artist to be successful in today's world. And he has 12 principles that he or 12 strategies that he basically goes through in the book that help you create your art, promote your art, and make money from your art. So I'm pretty excited to have him educate us on those exact principles. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's mine. So, Jeff, were you a starving artist? Yeah, yes, I was. Um, and I think that's uh, more of a mindset than it is uh, necessarily like a condition of, of your work. And so if you think like a starving artist, you're going to starve. And yes, I thought like a starving artist for a long time, and I did, in fact, starve. Yeah, I did that for many years. And I'm, I'm interested in your form of art. Was it writing? Was it uh, painting, singing? What was it? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think of myself as a writer these days, um, but uh, I've done a lot of different mediums. When I was a kid, I used to draw Garfield comics. Um, you know, I would draw Garfield, my friend would draw Odie. And my mom saw that I loved to draw, and so she gave me uh, art, like, set me to take uh, art lessons, you know, painting lessons, charcoal, a bunch of different mediums. And uh, the teacher you know basically said i didn't get it and that i wasn't very good and so i was like okay well i won't do that and then my dad always played guitar and so he taught me how to play guitar and i started a band in high school and then i continued playing music in college and when so when i graduated college with a spanish major i took the next step that made sense in my career and i toured the country with a band for a year <laughs> so uh i you know my this, this group and i toured all over north america we spent a month in Taiwan. We were huge in Taiwan. And um, whenever we – I think we made maybe $8,000 that year. 
And we, the way we kept our expenses down to basically nothing is we'd stay in people's homes. They would feed us, give us some gas money, and send us to our next gig. And wherever, um, uh, whenever we would stay with people, they would often say, hey, it's great that you're doing this while you're young because when you get older, you can't make any money off of art. You can't you know, make a living off of playing music, so you're going to have to get a real job. And, of course, you know, I believed them. These were adults after all. And and so, you know, I, I finished up uh, my first year with that group and I quit the band, moved to Nashville, which is not the order that you typically do those things in. And, <laughs> Definitely not with music, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I chased a, my girlfriend down here. She was wanted to work in the music business and I wanted to marry her. And I, and I, did, ju- <laughs> I did just that. And, um, and then I started kind of my real job, you know, and I, I became a marketing director for a nonprofit. I did that for seven years. Uh, I figured out how to help ideas spread. And while I was marketing other people's ideas and projects, I felt this sense in myself that I had ideas. I had a message that I wanted to spread too. And, and that's when this desire to write kind of came back. And so, uh, throughout most of my 20s, I would start a blog. I'd get really excited. You know, I'd have an idea in the shower. I'd go start a blog and I would, you know, chase this idea for six, maybe eight weeks and then it wouldn't take off. I'd get bored with it. I'd go start another project and I would write articles and submit them to magazines. I did most of my work for free. Every once in a while, I'd get paid a little bit to do something. And, you know, in my mind, I just thought this is a hobby because there's no way I could make a living as a writer. And so for the greater part of a decade, I had a day job and was a starving writer. Hmm. And I love the fact that you said that that's a mindset then. But now you're a sought-after keynote speaker. You have a reputation for challenging the status quo. And in three years, you built a million-dollar business. What did you learn? <laughs> I mean, this is a far cry from the guy that, that was told that, you know, you should probably quit the music career because it's not going to do anything. Since you've written yeah. four books. Yeah, sorry. I, sorry. I, I just, yeah, I'm very curious about what you did to get there. Yeah, so it's the same guy uh, with same insecurities, same feeling of self-doubt going, you know, I, I can't do any of this. Like none of that ever went away, which I think is important to, to note. Um, but yeah, I did start thinking differently about the work that I did and um, – the way that that happened was I was working at this nonprofit, and I I I felt this itch that I didn't know how to scratch. And uh, like I said, I had a day job. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. Uh, it just felt comfortable to me, and I didn't want to be comfortable. I wanted to be doing great things with my life, and and I didn't think that being comfortable was the way to necessarily do that. And so I was really afraid that. You know, 27 years old, I was anticipating having a midlife crisis, you know, 15 years from now. And so I started going to conferences. I started reading books. Like I, I, I was trying to find ways to scratch this itch. And even though I've been writing my whole life, it wasn't something that was obvious to me. It, It was just something that I sort of took for granted and didn't think, um, you know, there's anything to it. I kind of thought, Everybody knew what I knew and everybody could do what I could do because that's how we feel about the things that we do, you know, somewhat naturally and we've been doing our whole lives. And so I started going to conferences and I started reading books and going to seminars and just trying to find like what is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing with my life. 
And I read this book around this time called Let Your Life Speak. It's by a guy named Parker Palmer. And in that book, he says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And around this time, I started remembering things. I started thinking back on you know the past 27 years of life. And I remember drawing cartoons, you know, I remembered not being very good at art, uh, you know, at at that art class. I remember playing music and, um, you know, I loved writing songs. I also remembered weird things like my mom read me the dictionary on long road trips when we would go on vacation. And I just thought that was normal. Nobody told me I was, you know, (laughs) this was weird. And but I like looking back, I was like, wait, like not everybody did this. This isn't normal. And I loved it. Like it was fun. And so in sixth grade I won the school spelling bee and the winning word was acquiescence. And I beat I beat an eighth grader. It was the only time as a sixth grader I ever made an eighth grader cry. <laughs> and so I started remembering all these things and I realized, wow, writing is this thread that has been woven throughout almost all of my life. And so when I began listening to my life, it seems pretty clear that it was telling me I ought to be a writer. And so I started a blog. I started writing on it every day. And when a friend asked me what my dream was, I was still too afraid to admit it. Uh, I said, you know, I don't know. And he said, really? Because I would have thought that your dream was to be a writer. It seems pretty obvious to me. I said, well, okay, yeah, I guess I'd like to be a writer someday. And he looked at me and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And so that's when I started the blog and I started writing every day and and I didn't I haven't stopped ever since. A year later I had tens of thousands of readers on my blog. My wife and I were getting ready to have our first child and I realized, okay, this is a cool hobby, it's fun. Um a lot of people are starting to care about your work, but you're still not making any money off of this. And I realized I had to find a way to make some money off of it. And that's when I started the business. I started uh, publishing books. I started an online course teaching writers. And all of it was just trying to find a way to get paid to do this thing that kind of felt like a hobby to me. And I didn't know that I could do it, uh, but I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to, to make that happen. And so the first email that I sent where I basically let people pay me for something, I was you know scared to death. And in many ways, I kind of still am. But I've come to appreciate that if you give, 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 it's only natural that some people will want to give back. And so I knew it was time to start charging for my work when I was writing a blog post every day for free and giving it to my audience. I was doing webinars for free and I was, um, you know, giving away ebooks and all these things that I could have charged for that I was too afraid to because I thought, well, you can't make any money off of that. Like nobody told me you can actually get paid to do this. And it was my audience, my readers, who started emailing me saying, thanks for another free thing, but we'd really like to pay you for something. Can I buy something from you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, sure. And I think it's Amanda Palmer who says, you don't have to make people pay you for your art, but you do have to let them. And once I started letting people do that, I mean, it changed everything. That's that's a beautiful story. And I wanted to set that premise because – as you, as we talk about some of the concepts that you put in your amazing book, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a short read, so anyone, uh, there's no excuse basically to, to read this. It, it's great. You did a lot of research. You did a lot of research. Yeah. And, uh, I, I want you to share the benefit of, of doing that research because 
my favorite concept that you des- you described in the book was marketing partnerships and the importance of collaborating for the sake of creativity. Like I just loved that aspect there. But how did your research lead you to that? So I, you know, you call it research. In I uh, yes, you have to research for a book. But all that means is I like to read, and I read a lot of books even before I started working on this book. And so for me, um, I don't start writing a book. At least this is my fifth book, so this is so far how it's gone. I don't start writing a book then doing the research. I'm reading a lot of different things. I love biographies, and so when I started writing this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, which has a lot of uh, stories and case studies from creative individuals throughout history, I had read you know, um, half of these books already. And so when I started – then the idea started to come together, I thought – it triggered all these other books and ideas and things that I had already studied. And so things kind of came to a head for me when, first of all, I had had this experience as a writer that I shared with you where I had gone from not making any money to making a full-time living as as a writer um, in a short amount of time. And, of course, anytime that happens, you quit your job and you go work for yourself. All of your friends with day jobs go, how did you do this? And I didn't know if if it was just dumb luck or not. Like I, I, I didn't know. Like I was like, did I just get lucky or can anybody do this? And, and so I kept meeting two groups of people, people that were starving artists who were kind of apologizing for the, their creative work and were doing it for suffering and toiling. And they were really good, um, but they weren't getting paid much money and they had a you know, day job or a side gig to supplement it. And then there were what I call thriving artists, same level of talent and skill but they're killing it, right? And they're not famous. I'm not talking about Taylor Swift or anything. Just like everyday, ordinary people whose names you probably wouldn't recognize, but they're making a full-time living off of their art, and they're having a blast doing it. There's a difference between these two groups of people, and it seems pretty clear to me that it was mindset. Like One group of people are assuming that you're going to starve for your art, and the other group don't make that assumption. They think you can actually do what you love and get paid uh, to do it and thrive, you know, doing that work, and everything kind of came to a head when I read a story about the artist Michelangelo, where a researcher, a guy named Rab Hatfield, who is an art historian, discovered recently, in 2003, not so long ago, that Michelangelo had a fortune. He had over $50 million to his name when he died. He was the richest artist of the Renaissance. And this jived with a lot of the reading that I was doing, reading authors' biographies, artists' biographies, even entrepreneurs' biographies, where a lot of these people did the same things uh, to succeed. And I realized, wow, this all of this stuff is kind of coalescing. You know, knowing all these creative friends who are both successful and unsuccessful between them, knowing what Michelangelo did, and then knowing what all of these artists that I'd studied so far. Had done, and and so in the book I use Michelangelo as this archetype of a thriving artist. This, he is the greatest artist of all time, and he was the richest artist of his time. And in the Renaissance, he created this norm that many other artists followed. Followed in his footsteps, which was basically you could be an aristocrat and an artist. Before him, artists did struggle and starve for their art. After him, many, many artists in the Renaissance became wealthy. And so I thought, 
what if we're living in a new renaissance? What, are, what if all my thriving artist friends are the modern-day Michelangelos who are not starving for their art, they're thriving because of it? And what if we live in this age where it is not only possible to do your creative work and make a living, um, it's actually uh, probable. And, and, and that's the idea of the book is being a starving artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. So I was doing a lot of the reading and and then found this story that just kind of everything kind of connects and I thought, okay, now the formal, you know, research process begins. I love that story just because you talked about the you talk about Michelangelo and I'm a geek and I'm I always wonder who was greater, Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci. But Yeah. But the thing about him and even Da Vinci is the fact that they weren't limited by their mindsets. If you, if you look at Da Vinci and some of his, some of the, <laughs> the inventions and, and things that they all they all came up with, you realize that they saw art as their form to express themselves, but also it gave them permission to do everything that they were passionate about. And yeah, I see the internet as that that thing that allows people to amplify their passions in, in multiple ways. You talk about your blog, but your blog lead into a community. Leading to a book, leading to you on podcast, leading to you be a speaker, leading to you being consultant and doing all these things. But that's all came from that artwork that you must have unlocked after you really opened your mindset. Yeah, I do think that um, the things that we think about affect uh, the lives that we live, and that's why in the book I start with the the idea of mindset like it all begins with mindset and so you know there's that old henry ford quote um whether you think you can or or you think you can't you're right yep yep. and i like to tell people if you think you can't you won't and uh this is true in my experience with creative people if they go oh like i could never make any money off of this you're probably right and the the thing that i saw starving artists do were the exact opposite like the things that starving artists did to try to make their work succeed um like meaning they wanted their work to speak for their self speak for itself they didn't want to do any marketing um they 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 were really hesitant to charge for their work uh these things were actively contributing to their failure and on the other hand thriving artists the things that they were doing to help their work succeed were the things that starving artists actively avoided and so i really do think it is a mindset issue i don't think that money and art creativity and business are enemies in fact i think they can work together in a way that helps the world's greatest creative work spread now i completely agree so then let's talk about this then how do you hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Basically, make a living off of being a writer and an artist right now in today's world. How do I or how does someone? Someone. Let's do. Let's go with someone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the way that I do it is I write books, and uh, I I could live just off of my book royalties. I also um, uh, speak and host events and teach courses for writers because I I love that too. And how anyone does this, and, and I talk about this in the book is you're going to have to do it, you know, similarly. You're going to have to have multiple streams of income. Uh, this is true for every great business, you know. Every great business typically doesn't have all their eggs in one basket. And certainly every great artist, musician, writer, um, you know, if you want to live to fight another day, you need to be getting paid through multiple streams of income, not just one thing. So the way that you do is you build a portfolio. And if you're a writer, obviously, like that portfolio should include writing projects that you're getting paid for. I, I wholeheartedly reject the assumption that you can't get paid to just write books and, and make a living off of those books. You totally can do that. There's lots of people uh, doing that. But if you want, if you're nervous about that, if you've got a family to take care of, as I do, you want to stack the deck in your favor, which was the mindset that I had when I went into business for myself. I was like, well, I'll write books, but I'll probably have to teach and you know maybe do this blogging thing. And these were all things that I enjoyed doing, which I think is important. But I understood that I was going to have to do multiple things. And this, I think, is a big distinction between a thriving artist and a starving artist. A starving artist wants to just make money doing one thing, whereas a thriving, un- thriving artist understands that mastery is made up of multiple disciplines. You mentioned Leonardo da Vinci. Great example of that. You know, The typical Renaissance man where he was an inventor, he was a scientist, he was a draftsman, he was a painter, and, and even Michelangelo. Uh, painted. He was an architect. He was a construction foreman. He was a great manager of people. The last uh, four decades of his life, he had hundreds of employees helping build this uh, cathedral. And, and so if you're going to be like the masters who have come before you, you're going to have to tackle multiple disciplines, and each of those disciplines can create uh, revenue streams for you. So uh, it's going to mean that you're going to have to take one skill, like writing, and then take that skill and find multiple applications and revenue streams that come from that. So, for example, if you write, um, then what you can do really well is you can typically think through problems and ideas. Somebody said, you know, writing is thinking on paper, and I think that's true. So, in addition to writing, you might also be able to speak uh, as you do. Uh, you might also be able to consult or coach. Uh, you, you might be able to take your ideas that you write about and put them in online in the form of an online course. Uh, if you do something really well, you can always teach that something. And uh, all of these different activities are different ways that you can basically get paid to do the same thing, but you're letting people pay you in, in different ways. And so that's what I've done. That's what, uh, you know, I've become a student of. Uh, full-time writers who are making a living today, everybody that I talk to, uh, I'm talking about outliers. I'm not talking about a Stephen King or J.K. Rowling. That's great. 
um, like they are the equivalent of you know winning the lottery, and I think we can learn things from them. But keep in mind, they all like their big break happened 30, 40 years ago, so it's a different world today. Everybody that I talk to who's succeeding at writing today, they're doing multiple things that are bringing in uh, revenue, and I think that the challenge is when you create a portfolio that what you put in that portfolio are all activities that you like, that you're good at, and that there is a demand for. So all the activities I mentioned I liked and and, and continue to like, like speaking, um, uh, writing, and teaching. Those are all things that I've enjoyed. But over the years, opportunities have come my way where uh, you know I could do more consulting. And I did that for a while. I was like, I'm going to be a consultant and work with organizations. And I did that for a while. And I realized I don't like this that much, and I'm actually not that good at it. People will pay me to do it because there's some reputation, you know, that I have. But I don't like. I should not be doing this just because I can doesn't mean I should. And so, um, you need diverse streams of income. You need to create a portfolio. But everything that goes in that portfolio should be something that you enjoy, that you can do well, and that is going to meet the need of somebody else. Well, yeah, his book is called "Real Artists Don't Starve," and we were just talking about the importance of building your portfolio. And leveraging that artwork into um, diversifying your your income stream, but also your your presence. And um, I you know I I just love that. I love the fact that you're you you stress on the fact of just starting you know, and having that mindset. You know, my career, if I think of it, it started with the, this podcast that you're listening to right now, and it's it, it came at a time when obviously I had all these ideas, and I was like, I'm just going to start to share these stories about my background. Uh, as someone that grew up in all these countries and is helping people connect wow. across that. And then I, it was just that. I, was, I moved to the city, bad, you know, I was like, oh, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And once you start to invite people, people start to get more insight into who you are. They buy into that. And your community, much like they <laughs> they reached out to you, they're like, hey, what else are you doing? Can you come speak? Can you come do this? Can you come talk? Can you come do that? And you start to realize the importance of actually just starting and building the portfolio because they, some of the listeners, the proactive ones, had already packaged me and said, hey, he's got a blog, he's got this, he wrote about that, this article helped me, this interview helped me, and they basically were putting together my portfolio, and I was like, oh my goodness, if someone can do this, why am I not doing this for myself and leveraging that into more opportunities? And I mm. think that's the beauty of, of what we can do today with, uh, with digital media, and it's not even just thinking, like, like you said, the Taylor Swift and all that, all those people, it's understanding <laughs> that you can still be well known within your niche. It's just a matter of you understanding like, Hey, I've got this. There is a school that needs that, or there is a company that needs that. And I'm going to go reach out to that and basically say, Hey, this can help you. So I love that. Yeah. That's great. Tayo. Yeah. yeah agreed. Awesome. awesome. So we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I, you know, I'll be remiss if I didn't let you talk about, you know, how success in business and in life flow from a healthy exercise of creativity. Yeah, so um, there's this concept in the book called practice in public, and I think it is the best way to share your art with the world. It's the best way to market your work, uh, whether you think of yourself as a creative or not, and it is also the best way to stay honest. So when I had that conversation years ago or my friend said, hey, you are a writer. You just need to write, uh, that was a pivotal pivotal moment for me. And then I, th I thought, well, okay, um, what do writers do? And I thought, well, they get up every morning and they write, right? Like that's what I assume they do. And so I got up at 5 a.m. and I started writing. And I every day I did that for a year and I wrote something, about 500 words, 
and I would publish it on my blog. I did this for every day for the first year um, of this writing career that I was starting about six years ago. And that was that did two things for me. One, it just kept me honest. So if I didn't show up, then uh, somebody was going to notice. And, and it wasn't like I had hundreds of people um, waiting for my work. Um, I didn't have anybody at the very beginning, but because I put it on the blog, eventually somebody found it, and eventually there was an audience built around it, and it was just this act of putting something out there knowing somebody was going to see it. If I didn't do that, there was this fear that if you know that somebody would, would know, right, even if that weren't true. And it kept me honest, and it forced me to practice every day. And I just think when you practice in public, you do your best work. Yeah. When I was when I was playing music, for the first six years of playing guitar, I, I played by myself or with a couple of friends in my bedroom in my basement, you know. And so if I played a wrong chord or messed up, I could go back and fix it. When we started playing shows and eventually started touring, um, we didn't really practice anymore. The road was our rehearsal. And we would sometimes play five shows a day. You know, we were playing dozens of shows a week. And I got better. And then lots of professional musicians have said the same thing. I got way better that first year of touring because I had to. Because there was an audience. Sometimes the audience was only like, you know, 10 people. But there was somebody there who was going to notice if I failed. And you just bring your A game when you practice in public. So having a creative practice, I think, is essential to getting good at any craft, but having a creative practice that you do in public allows you to stay honest, it allows you to get good, and then eventually it allows you to build an audience. And you don't have to like do your work and get really good and then go market it. You're marketing while you're practicing. This is what Pablo Picasso did when he moved to um, Paris in the early 1900s and was an unknown artist. He started painting people and giving them the paintings but not just anybody he started painting people like Gertrude Stein who was one of the most influential uh, art patrons in the art scene uh, at the time especially in the kind of avant-garde movement and so over the course of about a year he painted her 90 different times gave her all the paintings what did she do she hung these paintings up in her house people came over and saw them because she was a well-connected patron and they said who is that uh, you know, years later, Picasso was worth over $500 million. I talked to lots of fine artists and musicians and writers who are doing this today in their own way. And the way that their careers started um, was with some sort of practice that they were doing every day in public. I would argue there is no other way to achieve your own personal mastery, and this is the best way to market your work and eventually build an audience that will want to pay you for your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to start and you got to put yourself out there. And there's a, you know, there's there's an interesting mix of vulnerability, bravery, and and showing up that 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 that, that involves. And I think when you put yourself out there and you see interactions and you get used to counter arguments to whatever it is that you present, you only get sharper. Um, yeah, and, uh, and that's amazing. So, nah, I love it. Daily practices mm. of creativity. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness, that's that's amazing. So wait, so what's next? What's next for you? I mean, we know that this, this is your fifth book. How are you changing the world? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this fall I'm going to start fishing with my son Aiden. Uh, that really is kind of the next thing on my horizon. Looking forward to doing that. That's something that my 
dad did with me and uh, my son's five now, so we're going to start uh, going fishing together. And um, I haven't started writing a new book, but I'll probably eventually start working on something. Um, and yeah, I'm continuing to find communities of creatives and artists and people who need this uh, message of real artists don't starve. I'm excited excited to share that with more people. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I, you know, I can't wait to to uh, learn more. And we're going to put that in the show notes. So once again, the book is called Real Artists Don't Starve, which is a true statement. So I, mm. I, lo- I love I love the boldness of the title. Um, I can't let you go without asking my mission statement. So my mission statement and the foundation of everything I do is use your difference to make a difference. It's the yeah. reason for my existence here right now. Um, how do you, Jeff, use your difference to make a difference? Yeah, so I think the most recent example of this um, is uh, my team and I host a conference every year called the Tribe Conference, and it's a, it's a smaller, um, tight-knit uh, conference and community for writers and creatives, uh, teaching them how to uh, get the attention their messages deserve. And, um, I mean, we've, had, we've done this for three years now, and we've had um, probably hundreds of people come up to us and say, this is the best conference I've ever been to in my life. And the first year, I was just trying to, like, not suck. You know, I was just trying to pull it off, right? The next year, I was wondering if I could do it again. And this year, in many ways, the the team and I, we feel like we nailed it. And it's just, you know, we're finally hitting our stride. But this is the first year where I kind of owned what makes this event, and, you know, probably me, different. And and somebody, um, I said, well, you know, why, why do you keep coming back to this conference? Why do you like it? Etc. And um, somebody said, you know, it is the down-to-earthness, realness of this community that keeps me coming back. And I think what I realized this year is all the things that I'm embarrassed of, the fact that I say, um, or like, or my voice cracks because I'm, you know, 34 and still haven't completed puberty, um, all these things that make me a little bit less buttoned up as a communicator, my dry sense of humor, the things that like the perfectionist in me goes, that's not professional. These are all the things that endear me to my audience. And uh, like I'm being 100% honest and saying if I could like wave a magic wand, I would be perfect at all these things. I would, th- I would erase all the cracks you know and just be this shiny pristine thing and i realized this year like people don't want that like when you share your mess it gives people permission to be themselves and be okay with themselves and realize maybe their mess can be their message as you know uh my friend ashita gupta puts it like make your mess your message and so for me, it's been kind of an epiphany to realize all the things that I'm a little bit embarrassed about, the things that I uh, wish I could clean up in my mess, like these are the things that in many ways connect with people in powerful ways. They resonate with them and give them permission to be themselves. And so, yeah, I, I'm embracing my inner weirdo, you know, and <laughs> and, I, <laughs> I and, and owning it because it really – can be powerful for other people because you're giving people permission to be themselves instead of aspiring to some level of perfection that not only is impossible for them to achieve, like it's not what they're designed to do. Yeah, absolutely. No, and and I completely and fully, wholeheartedly uh, concur with that. You know, it's it's uh, 
lifestyle I like to live by as well. So I just want to thank yeah. you for, for coming on and sharing all that that knowledge, sir. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know why real artists don't starve, make sure to check Jeff Goins, uh, a book, and we'll put that in the show notes. But um, more importantly, I hope you all are continuing to use your difference to make a difference. Till next week. Stay awesome and keep smiling. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.